Well, good morning. Yeah, it is good to see you here. Uh, it is good to be here to continue our series here in the book of Philippians in the New Testament. I was thinking uh, last week about a principle in the Bible and just the way that a number of Bible stories are told. Have you ever noticed this, that a lot of stories in the Bible leave us without any satisfying resolution? The biblical writers don't always tell us how things end. And perhaps the most famous example of this would be in the Old Testament story of Jonah. And of course, you probably know Jonah's story. And after the great miracle at sea, saving his life, and then the even greater miracle of the repentance of the Ninevites, the book ends with Jonah pouting uh, and upset about that God would save these people. And the book actually ends with a question God asking him, are you right to feel this way? Are you right to be angry? Of course, he's not right, but we're never told actually how Jonah responds. It's left hanging. Jesus told stories like this too. The story of the prodigal son ends with the older son upset about his father showing mercy to the younger son. And then the father explains why he should be celebrating, but we're not told if the older son ever joined in the celebration. And the gospel writers do this as well. Of course, the gospel of John ends with Jesus inviting Peter, who had denied him multiple times. He invites him to return to him, to come and to minister to his people. But we are not told whether or not Peter actually takes him up on the offer. Of course, spoiler alert, you read the book of Acts, he does. But I think the reason that this tactic is used often in scripture is to challenge the listeners with questions. So we read Jonah and we ask ourselves, like Jonah, will we hold on to our prejudices against people we don't care for if God shows them mercy? Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, we're told, to a group of people who were grumbling over Jesus receiving sinners. And so would they keep grumbling or would they join in the celebration and be glad for the repentance that was occurring in their midst? And Jesus' invitation to Peter at the end of John reminds us of his own mercy to us when we have failed and we come back to him and he offers to restore us, but will we take him up on it? And likewise, though it's not a narrative story like these other examples, we're left with a similar situation concerning last week's passage in Philippians. If you were here last week, you were, uh, heard Jeremiah lead us through chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, in which Paul referred directly and by name to two women in the Philippian church who had been in conflict with one another. And he exhorted them to agree in the Lord, and he exhorted other people in the church to help them to get there. And this was an essential thing. Paul was saying, if you are really to live in light of everything that I've written about in the three chapters leading up to this, then you couldn't remain at odds with each other. He's reminding them their names were written in the book of life. They were Christians. They knew that Jesus had given up the privileges of heaven to suffer for their sins, that he'd raised from the dead and ascended on high to be Lord of all creation and the Lord of their lives. They would one day be in heaven together confessing this truth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And they were now to be more and more as Christians transformed into the mind of Christ who was willing to put aside his own privileges for the sake of others who had sinned against them. And Paul is telling them, if all of this is true, if you share in the same salvation and the same Lord and have the same Holy Spirit living within you and you have the very mind of Christ, then you need to unify around those things and agree in 
the Lord. That was the story and exhortation that we looked at last week. But we ask ourselves, did it work? Did these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, did they ever make up? Did they ever reconcile? Was this rift in the church ever repaired and mended? And I suspect, maybe just because I want to, but I suspect that everything turned out well in that regard, but we really don't know. There is no second Philippians in the Bible. We never get a later update on these two people. So did they agree? We don't know. And that's probably for the best, because we should probably be applying the situation more to ourselves than to others, whether or not these two women some, you know, many centuries ago ever made up and mended their relationship does not have a lot of direct effect on our lives. But if we are doing the work to mend our own broken relationships does have effect on us. So are we, as much as it depends on us, living at peace with all others? And what if we've done our part, though, but it doesn't work? What if we do everything we can, even at great sacrifice to us, but we get taken advantage of? What if our friends disagree with us about this and there's no way to come to agreement? What if this breaks up our friend group or I lose friends because of this? What if the disagreement between these two women extends out like cracks in a windshield, gathering steam until it ultimately splits the church in two? We can ask, what if, what if, what if? There are so many ways that a situation like Paul has been addressing could go wrong. And so Paul's next instructions that he will say in Philippians, which we'll get to today, are super important in that regard. They will address what type of people Christians ought to be in the midst of those what-ifs. How do we live in an uncertain world where things do not always go the way we wish or hope or plan for? So what do we do then? And in this passage, Paul will give three simple commands and one great promise to help ground us in a chaotic world that is filled with uncertainty. And so we'll read the whole paragraph, verses 4 through 7 in Philippians 4, and then we'll go back through piece by piece. Uh, there's no notes in your bulletin today. There's not even any slides. But hopefully this outline is easy enough for you to follow. There are three commands and then one promise. And those are all contained in the sermon title on the bulletin. So let's read through this together. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you see there are three basic commands, to rejoice, to be reasonable, and to pray. And one great promise that concerns the peace of God guarding us. But let's look at those piece by piece. The first command there is in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And I like how Paul adds, and again I'll say rejoice, instead of just saying it again. He's like, I'm going to say it again, and now I say it again. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you might have had this verse like pounded into your brain through repetition of that song, right? Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say 
rejoice. Which I might add, that song is what the kids call a straight-up banger of a song. That song rules. It is good. It has everything. It gets faster. It gets slower. It's got well-placed hand clapping. It even goes in a round, for goodness sake, where you're singing different parts of it together. And it is so effective at getting the words of this verse into our head that some of us probably can't even get the words out of our head. But getting the concept of this verse into our hearts is much trickier than just learning a song. But the concept of rejoicing or joy is a key and important one in Philippians. This exact command to rejoice in the Lord is actually given four times in the letter. In Philippians 2.18, he said, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Philippians 3.1, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4.4, the first part of it, which we already read, rejoice in the Lord always. And the second part, again I say, rejoice. So four times he said this. This is a constant refrain throughout Philippians. And the word rejoice means to have joy, to exult, to be well and truly happy, and not in some fleeting sense, but in a real, firm, and grounded sense. And Paul says over and over and over, rejoice, have joy, have true, deep, and grounded happiness. And it's not just there four times. In fact, if you go and look through Philippians, for every time Paul uses uh, the word joy or rejoice or some variation of that, you'll find 16 instances of that in this letter. And we say, this is good advice. Rejoice, be joyful, be happy. Your life will be better with that. But this is not just be happy. This is not just clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. This is something bigger. And so Paul issues two qualifiers here. He says, rejoice, first of all, how? In the Lord. This is the grounds of their joy. And who is the Lord in Philippians? It is Jesus. If you are struggling for joy, go back and read Philippians 2, 1 through 11, over and over and over, and read of how Jesus gave up his place in heaven for you. Hear how he died for your sins. Listen to how he has been exalted on high. Pay attention to the fact that he is now ruling over all creation, and then say, God, make me happy with these truths. Make me happy with this. The grounds of our happiness is not to be found in any created or earthly thing, but in Jesus. Rejoice, first of all, in the Lord. That is how we do it. The second qualifier is when we do it, always. Rejoice in the Lord, always. This shows the breadth of the grounds of our joy and that nothing can dethrone Jesus, so there's no reason to ever stop being happy about that. Always means that no matter what happens, we have reason to rejoice. The Philippians were in a number of tough spots. Things were generally good in this church, but you read through the letter, there was a lot going on. In chapter 1, verse 30, Paul talked about their conflict or struggle that was ongoing. Uh, in 128, he talked about their fears. In 215, their hostile opponents. Last week, we looked at internal conflict between people in the church. And Paul, of course, is writing this from prison. So this isn't just, hey, be happy. Everything is good. This is a battle-tested and hard-fought appeal to have faith. That's where this joy comes from. Paul describes his own mentality elsewhere when he's writing to Corinthians as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. So it's not saying everything's always going to be easy. You can rejoice even in the midst of sorrow. But it isn't easy. It's telling them to rejoice 
in what they cannot see. But make no mistake, Paul is telling them to rejoice. He is issuing a command. This is a command that we are duty-bound to obey. C.S. Lewis once wrote to a friend, and he said, It is a Christian duty, as you know, for everyone to be as happy as he can. And we struggle with that sort of duty language for joy. How can you say rejoice, have joy, be happy? But it's all over the Bible. John Piper quotes a theologian named Edward Carnell who explains it this way. He says, suppose a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. Her answer is, yes, you must, but not that kind of must. And what she means is this, unless a spontaneous affection for my person motivates you, your overtures are stripped of all moral value. No husband or wife wants to be loved out of duty, and yet it is still a husband's duty to love his wife and a wife's duty to love her husband. And same with God. We want to love God and be found happy in him from the heart and always and no matter what. But I realize that this is a hard command. Because perhaps we would love nothing more than to be able to obey this from the heart. Say, I wish I was happy. But the reality is that a lot of times we simply don't feel like it. Can you just turn this on and off? How can we just be joyful? Well, first we have to recognize that we will obey this command imperfectly as we will with all things until we die or Christ returns and we see him as, we, as he is and we're made perfect in joy and in holiness. But we strive toward this. I don't have time to go into great detail on it, but I would just say keep on striving. If you're in a place and you're struggling for joy, keep struggling for it. Keep seeking after it. And I would encourage you, it's good that you are here today. Maybe you're struggling to rejoice in the Lord this morning, but you're here and that's where you need to be. We sing songs of rejoicing. You surround yourself with others who are rejoicing. You re come to church. You rejoice with whatever you can and pray that God would bring your heart into alignment with the words that you are professing here. It's not a fake it till you make it type thing. It's a recognition that we do our best to obey God and we trust him to complete his work in us in his time. So first command, rejoice in the Lord always. It's a very important thing for living in this world. Can we have attitudes and lives of rejoicing? Let's move on, though, to commandment two in verse five. It's phrased kind of funny in the ESV. It says, basically, be reasonable, right? Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And that word reasonableness is describing what we're commanded to be here, but it's kind of a weird word choice. I don't think there's any other translation that uses it in English. And in fact, if you look at other translations, you'll find a ton of ways in which this word is translated from the Greek. Just in my search, I found graciousness, gentleness, moderation, patience, kindness, consideration, piety, forbearance, and temperance. And anytime you see that many options in the translations, you know this is a tricky word to translate. And in fact, it can be understood better in the New Testament often by looking at what it means by its opposites. If you do a word study, you'll find it often contrasted. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls the opposite of this trait an unquiet spirit, a grasping desire to have our own way. So you know what that means, to have a grasping desire to have your own way. He says this, reasonableness, is not that. D.A. Carson says this. He says it refers to the exact opposite 
of a spirit of contention and self-seeking, which is why the NIV opts for gentleness. But this gentleness must not be confused with being a wimp, with the kind of person whose personality is akin to a wet dishcloth. What is in view is a certain kind of willed, self-effacing kindness. And then he hones in on that phrase, self-effacing, as the real uh, essence of this word. That means that we don't claim attention for ourselves. And then he says, take this quality and make it what you are known for. Like, let everyone know that you are self-effacing, which is kind of ironic. But it's a good thing to think about. If you're going to be known for anything, be known for this that you are not contentious, that you don't always have to get your own way, that you are kind to others and you seek the good of other people. That's the idea here. And this is so hard to do. And it will be a constant work of the Lord toward this in the life of every Christian. Because even at our best and most charitable of moments, I think that we are often plagued with selfishness. And I know I am. I've been thinking a lot about some of this. And I'm working on this with the Lord's help. I've come to realize lately how even in serving the Lord, I'm often driven somewhere internally by a desire to be thought well of, to be affirmed, and that sort of thing. And I'm asking God to help me get rid of that, to really live this out, to be self-effacing and reasonable, to stop caring about what people think while still caring about people. And that's hard to stop caring about what people think while still caring about people, but I think that is what is in mind here. Because to be selfish, I actually like that the ESV translators went with reasonableness here, because to be selfish is just by general logic and observation an unreasonable position. So it's not a bad translation choice. There are almost 8 billion people in the world, and we think that we are the main character of all of this, like, that is an unreasonable position. So Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let them know that you don't always think of yourself as the main character. And then he gives a motivation for this. The Lord is at hand, or the Lord is near. And now again, the ESV translators kind of connected this to the next verse, but I think it fits with this one, that it's tied to this thought. Be reasonable, be self-effacing, because you know that the Lord is near. But what does it mean that the Lord is near? It means one of two things. He's either talking about time or about space. In time, that the Lord is about to come back. Or in space, that he is close to us in some way. And I think in all likelihood, because both of those things are true, that Paul had both of them in mind. We know that Jesus is going to return in time. So he's near in that sense. And when he returns, he will usher in his reign as king of the universe, first in his millennium and then for all eternity. And we know what will happen then. Isaiah describes this in chapter 2. He says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And so knowing that this day could come at any moment when all men will be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted, is it a reasonable thing to place ourselves at the center of the universe? Is that how we want to be living when the Lord returns? Because his return is near. But think also spatially. 
If the Lord was close to us right now, if the Lord was in our midst, how would we respond? If Jesus were in the room with you, would you be tempted to flaunt your own greatness? Would you want everyone to see how good and right you are? Would you push for your own way? No, of course you would not, but it is true that the Lord is in our midst. Jesus promised this. Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And we know that the Spirit of the Lord dwells within us. So Paul says the Lord is near in time and in space. So be reasonable. Don't get a big head. Don't be contentious. Don't be mean to other people. And that's the second command, which really helps us to process through tough situations when it's not all about us. But he moves on to the third command in verse 6, and it's a two-parter. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So two parts to this command. One, stop being anxious. And two, start praying. Don't be anxious, but instead learn to pray. And this is a common problem among people. You know, one of the most common things I think that people struggle with are these issues of you know, depression and anxiety, things that are addressed so directly in this passage. In fact, Pastor Tim was mentioning uh, ministering in Cuba earlier, and I was there in November, and we were doing a class on pastoral ministry, and we were talking some about pastoral counseling. And I was sharing with the class, I said, you know, as a pastor in the United States, probably people come to see you for pastoral counsel primarily for two reasons. One, they have relational conflict, especially in marriage or family situations. And two, they're battling you know, anxiety and depression, and they want help to work through that. And I said, what is it in Cuba? Like how, you know, what do people come and seek your counsel for as pastors in Cuba? And they said, oh, pretty much the same thing. Uh, they have relational conflict, uh, they have anxiety and depression, and also they have no food. So that kind of complicates things. It puts ours into perspective a bit, but it is a common problem wherever you go. Uh, much of what I'll say on this point has been drawn from uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' excellent book. It came out in 1965. Martin Lloyd-Jones was someone who was a medical doctor who then entered into the ministry and was a fantastic preacher. He wrote a book called Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cures. And if you have any interest in this subject, I would highly recommend it. But again, much of my thought will come from him on this point. But Paul says, don't be anxious. Instead, learn to pray. And that command on the surface might seem harsh. It might seem lacking in empathy. Because if you have ever been around an anxious person, or if you have been an anxious person yourself, you know that one of the least helpful things is for somebody to say, don't be anxious. It's not so easy to just not be anxious. When you're lying in bed and it's three in the morning and you're unable to sleep because your mind is racing with anxious thoughts and your heart is plagued with anxious feelings, you would love nothing more than to be able to turn all of that off and rest. But it's not easy. It's not easy to be anxious because it seems like anxiety is something that's out of our control. And the truth is, in a lot of ways, it is. And it doesn't seem like it should be because it arises internally and not externally, but it's the truth. Paul even acknowledges here that anxiety comes from within us. Verse 7, he says, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. That's where it comes from. Anxiety comes from our hearts and our minds, from our own self. But the implication is that we can't always control our hearts and minds. We need to be protected even from ourselves. 
The heart, of course, is the very center of the person, the seat of emotions and being and personhood. The mind is concerning our thoughts. And when we're anxious, we see both of these things playing out, right? Our hearts are very affected by situations. We feel things deeply, especially when hard or difficult things arise. When a loved one is sick, when finances are short, you have a feeling about this. And there's a pit in your stomach a lot of the times. But we think things too. Anxiety affects our minds. We're very good at thinking things. We are very creative thinkers as humans, right? We think not only about all of the things that are happening, we think about all the things that could happen. And then when we think about things that could happen, if those things happen, and we become this mess of anxiety, and in all of this, we lose the joy of the Lord. And this is a familiar scenario, very common situation. So what do we do? Now remember, the Philippians were in difficult times. Lots of reasons they had for anxiety inside their church and outside the church. So this is real-world advice. And note what Paul does not say. He does not say, hey, stop worrying and pull yourself together. You can try that. You might have some success, but it's useless in the end. It just leads to repression of the issue and pushing it down. You push down that anxiety. He also doesn't say, don't worry because, you know, it might never happen, this thing that you're worried about. That doesn't help because it still might. And that's where the anxiety comes from. He also doesn't say, don't worry, because worrying makes no difference on whether or not it will happen. And that's true in a sense also. But the thing might still happen. So the worry still remains. But what does Paul say? Again, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. This is good advice. This is real advice. And people might say, I have tried this. I have prayed. I feel no better. All the worry, all the anxiety remains. And I have felt this way myself at times. But I have to ask myself a lot of the time, if I'm being honest, have I really prayed? Have I really followed the advice here in the scriptures from the heart and with full effort? Let's look at what Paul says here. He breaks it down into three pieces. He says, first of all, pray in everything by prayer. And this is distinguished from other types of prayer, like supplication and thanksgiving. He'll get to those. But Lloyd-Jones says here that the first emphasis on prayer is a focus on worshipful prayer. It's how the Lord's Prayer begins. Our Father in heaven, what hallowed be your name. It's a focus on who God is, on God's character. It's reciting good things back to God saying what he has done and who he is and all of that sort of stuff. It's saying here that we shouldn't rush straight into our problems, but spend time in the presence of God, focused on him, on worshiping him. You recognize what a thing it is, what a privilege it is to be brought into God's presence and you respond accordingly. But go slow here. Don't rush this step. It's very important. And you might need to get to a different place in your life. You might need to make efforts to find a place of solitude and silence, perhaps even to say nothing for a time, to simply stop, to slow down, to listen, to focus on the Lord. There will be a time for requests, but take time to get there. Start with God and focusing on his goodness and his love for you. And when we have done that, Paul then goes on to supplication by prayer and supplication. These are our requests. When he says supplication, he's talking about our requests. There is a time for our requests, 
And the time is now. When you've come to God in worshipful prayer, then make your requests to him. And know this, God wants to hear from you. He wants you to bring your concerns to him. Your concerns are not petty. They are not small. This is how he wants to help you. He wants you to bring these things to him. Your concerns are not unimportant. So talk to God about the specific things that are concerning you. Take time with this too. Be open. Be specific. If it helps, write it out. Journal it out. But be honest because God knows all of your concerns anyway. He knows where they come from. He knows your faults in all the matter even more than you do. He knows everything. But tell him what you need. He wants you to do this. So do it. But there's a way to do it. You make your request. You ask God to help you with the situation that is concerning you. But you do it how? With thanksgiving. Right? By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving giving. If we go to God while holding a grudge against God, we are unlikely to leave with the peace of God. But if we come to him with gratitude, which may not be easy in an anxious circumstance, but that's how we are to do it. I love what Tom Schreiner says about this verse. He says, we don't merely make our requests known to God, but we thank him as we pray. And listen to this. He says, we are thankful because he is so mightily God in the situation which causes anxiety. Hear that again. We are thankful because God is so mightily God in the very situation that is causing us anxiety. He doesn't stop being God no matter what's happening to us. And thankfulness reminds us of this truth. It kind of forms a circle. We start with worship, we move to our requests, but we color them with thankfulness, which brings us back to a place of worship. What does it look like, though, to be thankful in the midst of anxiety? How can you be thankful in a very anxious situation? Martin Lloyd-Jones recommends something like this. He says, I may be in trouble at the moment, but I can thank God for my salvation and that he has sent his son to die on the cross for me and for my sins. There is a terrible problem facing me, I know, but he has done that for me. I thank God that he sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. I will thank him for bearing my sins in his own body on the tree. I will thank him for rising again for my justification. I will pour out my heart in thanksgiving for that. I will thank him for the many blessings I have received in the past. You don't have to use those exact words, but something like that is very helpful to start with. But work at it. Thankfulness is a discipline. Lloyd-Jones goes on. He says, we must just work out with our mind and with all our energy the reasons for thanking and praising God. We must remind ourselves that he is our father, that he loves us so much that the very hairs of our head are numbered. And when we have reminded ourselves of these things, we must pour out our heart in thanksgiving. We must be in right relationship to God. We must realize the truth concerning him. So you see this prayer that Paul is advocating for here is not just a crying out to God in the dark, giving no thought to it, and just vocalizing out of frantic desperation. No, it is a sitting with God, remembering who he is, worshiping him, and then making our requests known. But as we do so, we don't stop worshiping. We do so with thankfulness. We remember again that he is so mightily God, even in the situation that is causing us anxiety. 
And I think that when I'm battling anxiety and I'm reminded, whether by another person or by scripture, I'm reminded to pray, I often think, I already have. I've been praying throughout this whole thing and it didn't really work. So now what do I do next? But if I'm being honest, I have rarely prayed like this in a dedicated sense from worshipful prayer to personal supplication and all anchored in thanksgiving. And I ask, how often do I pray like that ever? And yet, that's the model of prayer we see throughout Scripture. To paraphrase another sentiment, it's not that prayer has been tried and found lacking. It's that true prayer has been found difficult, and so it's been left untried. But when we do try this, when we do pray in this way, there is a marvelous promise attached. One of the most encouraging promises in the whole Bible. Verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a great promise we have. Notice that it doesn't say a thing about what is giving you anxiety. What you fear may happen, it might happen or it might not, but in your innermost person, you will be guarded from it. These things will be kept from you, not that they won't happen, but that you will be protected by the Lord from them. You will not be allowed to steal your joy and your place in Christ. But see here that prayer is not just a psychological mechanism. It's not that prayer makes us feel better. It's not just that prayer distracts us momentarily from other issues. It's not that we are creating thoughts in our head through prayer to push out other unhealthy thoughts. No, it's instead that we pray and God acts. God will guard you. He will give you his peace, the peace of God, which is described here as surpassing all understanding. And this is a humbling thing for the preacher because we like to explain things in the biblical text. And then the text tells us, you can't understand this. You can't explain this. And so we can't. There is a peace from God that comes only from him that you cannot understand or imagine. If you haven't experienced it, maybe you can't even picture it. But it is beyond you because it is God's peace. And God is beyond you. And you don't get to understand everything about God. You can't fully understand it. But you know you can benefit from it. We often benefit from things that we don't understand. I don't fully understand how uh, jet planes work, but I can still travel in them from one place to another. I don't really actually know what like computers and the internet are and how all that is working, but I use them all the time. I don't have an exhaustive understanding of the respiratory system, but I enjoy breathing and benefiting from that. We benefit from God's peace even if we can't fully explain it. And then that becomes, in turn, a powerful witness as others see in us an inexplicable peace. I've heard from time to time testimonies, even from church members, who have been in and out of the hospital, either for themselves or for loved ones, and how the peace that they have from God when facing these difficulties has made an impression on medical staff that has been brought up to them. There's something different here. They're approaching this with faith. They have a peace that I cannot comprehend. And again, I can't explain all of this peace to you, but I have experienced it. And I hope that you have too. And I can promise that you can too when you work through these things as we see in this passage. So we have these three commands in our passage. Rejoice always, be reasonable in how you think of yourself, 
and pray instead of being anxious. And we have one great promise attached to that. God's inexplicable peace will guard us when we do these things. But there is a through line that connects all of these promises and all of these commands. And that through line is the person of Jesus Christ. Have you seen this? He is everywhere in this passage. Paul doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. And who is the Lord in Philippians? It is Jesus Christ, right? The one to whom every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when he says rejoice in the Lord, he's saying rejoice in Jesus Christ. And then he says, be reasonable. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Again, the Lord is Jesus. Be reasonable because Jesus is near. And when we pray, instead of worrying, God will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. That last phrase in verse 7, he will guard you in Christ Jesus, who is the Lord. And so you see, this is not a sort of self-help passage that will just make your life work better. Be happy. Do good to others. Take time for prayer. Do these things, and you'll find a sense of balance in your life. It's not that at all. It's not to connect your life to the divine or to find a sense of spirituality, to gain perspective in life and some fleeting sense of peace. No, it's not about that. It's about Jesus Christ, to be found in him, to be known by him, to have come to him for our salvation, to have Christ be all in all, Christ in our living and Christ in our dying and Christ everywhere in between. We rejoice because of Christ. We think rightly of ourselves because of Christ. We forsake anxiety and commit ourselves to prayer because of Christ. Two days ago was St. Patrick's Day. And this month I've been reading through a book of ancient like Celtic prayers and sermons and spiritual biographies. And there's a lot in there uh, that's tied to Patrick. And I've been particularly struck by an ancient Celtic prayer that is commonly attributed to Patrick, and it's known as the Lorica, or the breastplate prayer. It's a prayer of protection. And in its closing, it says this. He says, May Christ protect me today so that I may have abundant reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me. Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ to the right of me, Christ to the left of me. Christ in my lying, Christ in my sitting, Christ in my rising, Christ in the heart of all who think of me, Christ on the tongue of all who speak to me, Christ in the eye of all who see me, Christ in the ear of all who hear me. I rise today in power, strength, invoking the Trinity, believing in threeness, confessing the oneness of creation's creator. For to the Lord belongs salvation, and to the Lord belongs salvation, and to Christ belongs salvation. May your salvation, Lord, be with us always. And this ought to be our prayer, that Christ be in, on, around, and through everything we do and everything that we are. Rejoicing in the Lord, praying for God's peace is not a magical incantation that you can turn on and off. You can't just try this and see if it works and improves your life. No, you must be in Christ. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But are you in Christ Jesus. If you're not, you can try prayer. You can try rejoicing and all of that, and you might get some temporary relief, but in the end, you will be spinning your wheels. But being truly in Christ, you can know 
and live and experience this lived reality of the promises of God, which will sustain you through all things because nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, no matter how uncertain things are, no matter how, if you have no idea how the story will end, and when you don't know what to do next, you will have Christ, and Christ will be enough. But do you have Christ? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have given him to us, that you sent him for us and for our salvation. We thank you that he gave up his throne in heaven to come here to die for our sins, to raise from the dead, and to again be exalted on high. And so we pray, knowing that Christ is Lord of all creation, we pray that he would be the Lord of our lives that we would be people that are marked by rejoicing and an inexplicable happiness because it comes not from circumstances or other people, but it comes first and foremost through Jesus Christ, who does not change, who is with us always. Help us not be prideful or cruel to others. Help us be reasonable, to think of ourselves well, to treat others with gentleness accordingly, knowing that Jesus Christ is near to us. And God, help us to be people of prayer. Even when we have trouble seeing a way to pray, help us to pray. Help us to pray worshipfully. Help us to bring our requests honestly. Help us to color all of that with thanksgiving. And may we be grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God, you have promised to guard our hearts and our minds against Christ Jesus, and I pray that for every person here. Would you guard our hearts, guard our minds against the things that worry us, the things that trouble us, the things that would keep us from being joyful, the things that would cause us to put attention on ourselves and exalt ourselves. Though so much of this comes from within us, God, guard us even from ourselves that we might honor and glorify you. Guard our hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.